Welcome to Awakenings Movement Podcast. Awakenings Movement is a community where dreamers become believers and believers become doers. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Man, I'm so happy to be here with you guys. I'm so grateful um, that you guys made it out. Isaiah chapter 40. Let's start with verse 29. Thank you so much for coming, man. We do not take for granted that you guys uh, come. And uh, we're grateful. Saki, I'm sure you already celebrated. But Saki just graduated, and we're so proud of him. Yeah, we're going to keep celebrating. You're going to get about three, four, five more celebrations <laughs> in the next 30, 30 minutes. Because um, we're just proud of you and grateful, man. He's the, the first graduate um, from our community to graduate in such a significant and powerful way. Are there any other graduates? Anybody graduate from anything? That's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying, man, you know what? They had drums. They were dancing. I know. I said, golly, I want to graduate like that again. I want to go back to school just to invite your family to my graduation. <laughs> I want to party with them. Isaiah chapter 40. Um, let's start with verse 29. It says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Man, I want to read that again. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Second um, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Um, let me know when you get there. You know, I want to read Eugene Peterson's just so live to me. Like an MO breakout. If you ain't on that hiatus coyote, you're not going to heaven. Second um, Corinthians chapter three. I'm just playing. I'm just, I'm just joking, podcast listeners. I promise I'm just joking. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, 16 through 18. This is Eugene Peterson's interpretation, who calls himself a preacher. I think he's a more, more of a poet. He's one of the most recent interpreters of the, of the Bible, just a dynamic leader in the world who's still alive. He says this, whenever, can you, can you guys read this? You can't? Ready? Read. Stop right there. Golly. Oh, I like your hair. That's very Sade. <laughs> Continue reading. Ready? Read. They suddenly recognize that God is living, personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. 
And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We are freed of it, all of us, nothing between us and God, our faces shining with the brightest of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Oh, don't you want God to enter your life and you become more like him? I was talking to a, a leading emerging artist, not just in the world, um, but also more importantly in the city of Houston, Texas. His name is Robert Hodge and he invited a guy. Robert is not just a visual artist, he's also a musical artist. Y'all didn't know that about him. He's also a culinary artist. Y'all didn't know that either about him. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, he can, he can go. So this, I was talking to him, he was like, man, you know what? What I want to do is become more like the God that I love and serve, and I want people to know it. He said he was working with a guy with a music project that he's working on to celebrate Emancipation Park, and the dude that he did not know was a follower of God was like, hey, look, man, before I do anything, I got to let you know if it's going to in any way impair my relationship with God, like I'm really not going to get on, on the music. I'm, I'm not going to be a part of the music. And he was shocked and overwhelmed by that. And that drew him closer to a deeper understanding of how he wanted to be in the likeness of God. So much so that he didn't want to do anything that, would, that God would not like with his life, like this particular artist. And that's what it really means to be in the likeness of God. When I was a, a, a children's pastor, um, a kid came up to me and asked me, he said, so what does it mean to be like God? He said, what does it mean to be like God? And it was a 10-year-old kid. And I was like, well, it means to be pure. It means to be holy. And I started using all of these, like, church words. He's like, no, but what does it mean to be like God? And I said, you know what? If you do everything that you like deeply in your heart, you will be like God. Because God has placed his deepest longings for you in the deepest place of your heart. And if you can tap into what you truly and significantly enjoy, you will find pleasure in serving God, and God will find pleasure in you serving him. Being the likeness of God will make God happy. He's not God, but he's the God of comedy. For me, Martin Lawrence, right? Like during Devon's party, man, we were playing silent versions of, and man, we were cracking up. It was a DJ, it was kombucha, it was sangria, it was my mama's biscuits, but people were crowded around the projector just cracking up. Ah, look at that, Shaolin, I look at him. It was amazing to see a representation of a person who is godlike in his art. And so I, I wondered often when Danielle first told me that Martin Lawrence like retweeted and loved the picture of Devon's party and 5,036 people uh, liked Devon's face on Martin's body. <laughs> And I was like, what, what did he like about this, right? And, and I, as I look more, and then people kept telling me, like, man, how did y'all find the set? Like, where did y'all go? Whose kitchen did y'all go into? And I was like, no, I, I cut his head out and put it on Martin's body. <laughs> but Devon has a likeness of Martin Lawrence. So much so that I think Martin Lawrence liked the picture because of Devon's likeness to himself. <laughs> I got it, that's, that's what it was. He was like, dang, this dude looked like a young, without that running suit, slim, younger version of myself. Y'all remember that boy Martin was caught with that running suit on? He passed out. <laughs> he was like, this dude looked like me, like second episode, you know what I mean? 
And so he liked that about him. I think that God honors us in the same way. When we bring ourselves to a likeness of God, man, God will glorify what in you that is him to the highest, right? Your purest likeness is found by facing God. It makes you to spread wings and soar, run, and walk with a new purity about life. Is there anybody here who would like to be their purest likeness? Like to look more like yourself than yourself. I snuck into, um, into this art gallery. It was closed on a Monday. But I saw a picture online that Lovey Olivia made of Josie, right? And when I looked at that picture, um, I, I mean, literally, I snuck in um, to the art league. It was closed on Mondays. When I looked at the picture, I said to myself, this image that Lovey made of Josie looks more like Josie than I've ever seen Josie. It was more of a likeness to Josie than even I had seen in person. Somehow, Lovey Olivia had tapped into the heart of Josie and put it onto the canvas in such a unique way that it glorified God in a way that it brought Josie to tears. Josie said she was on her way to the show and had to collect herself, invest like 30 more minutes in putting her makeup back on because she just, it melted off, you know? As you turn to face God, your purest likeness turns to face you. The moment you decide to turn to face God, your purest, most beautiful, most powerful likeness, what's most powerful about you as a human being, will turn to face you. Don't you, sometimes we turn to face other people to find our own likeness. Maybe if they like us, then we'll like us. But only the one who created you can affirm what was created more than anybody else created. It makes what is unknown and nothing stand for something that becomes your brightest and purest likeness. It makes what is unknown and nothing stand for something that becomes your brightest and your purest likeness. Join me for a word of prayer. Dear God, right now in the name of Jesus, man, quite honestly, we are afraid to look into the mirror most days. For fear, Lord God, that we will cause such a friction of sound by what we see that we won't have the sound judgment necessary to move throughout the day with a clear head. Sometimes, Lord God, we avoid the mirror. But Lord, give us permission today in one way or another to turn to you and as we do, to find the purest version of ourselves. Make known to us what is sometimes unknown to people around us. Bring us to a more pure likeness of ourselves by turning to the likeness of you. Lord, we love you. Lord, we bless you. Lord, we give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What? What is it? You know what it is. This dude right here, he was a genius. Brilliant with his fingers, but also with his voice and intonation. With his capacity to choose the song that would best illuminate the emotion of the moment. Like when he said, it's what? just gone, it's gone what? Away. Can't just be gone. Bring it back. 
Just in case you forgot, it's gone, baby. The thrill is gone away. Well, you know you done me wrong. And you gonna be sorry someday. You gonna be sorry someday. If that ain't a threat, I don't know what it is. B.B. King. He was born Riley B. King, right, in 1925. Um, the blues music he liked became his likeness. His mama did not know what the B was. He grew up never knowing what the B stood for. The B was unknown. Riley B. King. But B.B. King died Bill Street Blues King, a.k.a. Blues Boy King. He grew to like what he was born to do so significantly, which was music, that a middle name that was unknown became known by what he did and most loved, B.B. King. They called him Blues Boy King early on in his career. He didn't begin as the musician that he is now. He began as a radio DJ in Memphis and at a radio station that was on Bill Street, famous for its music. You guys know that, right? So one day, he was working as a sharecropper, um, and when he was working as a sharecropper, he was making $7.25 a week. And he made his way, after he had gone to the Army, somehow to Memphis. And when he got there, he was talking to a guy that he met in a bar, and the guy was a radio DJ, and the guy had one spot that he had to fill that was late at night that he did not want to fill. And so he told B.B. King, well, at the time Riley, that he could take the spot. He got paid $12.25 every time he played music. He said, well, I think that sounds like a lifestyle change. <laughs> he stopped sharecropping and moved to Memphis, and he said that when he first walked into the radio booth, he said that he had only experienced like music on records rarely, but when he did, it touched him in a unique way. He said he felt like a kid in a candy store when he walked in and saw all of these records, and he could play whatever record he wanted to play on his own show and make like almost twice as much as he had been making before. This changed his life. He was so rooted to this particular room, to the wax, Chris, right, that they ultimately called him the blues boy because all he did was want to talk about, hang out with, listen to blues singers, blues, 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 blues. But ultimately, he became such a significant DJ that they called him Bill Street Blues. You see, there are times when we don't know what our purest image is, but if you find what you purely love to do, what you purely wake up to do in the morning, you will find a new, rich, meaningful identity that you did not know before. What is my purest likeness technically, though, Marlon? Technically. Is anybody else warm in here to me? Warm? Can we turn a little AC up? The thrill is going to be gone in a little bit when y'all start sweating. <laughs> technically. Technically, what is my purest likeness? Now, you got me all excited about it. Technically, what it is that you like at your core. Face God. Like the way to really begin to know. Some of us may have had challenges kind of really uh, bringing voice to this, like saying this. Face God. Now, face God even through what you don't like about yourself, and you will discover your divine likeness. Now, many times we don't like to turn to ourselves for self-exploration because there are some things that we are not quite happy with based on decisions that we've made in the past that we don't want to face. But what if God's face behind every failure is so bright and brilliant 
that even when you face your failure, if you're looking for him in your failure, you'll find a brightness about God's preferred future for your life. Face God even through your failure. Face who you love in God and find what you love in yourself. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. It says, whenever, though they turn to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil and there they are face to face. Well, some people say, well, what is the veil? You guys remember when Jesus died on the cross? The Bible says that like the veil torn was torn straight down the middle because Jesus's death disseminated. It destroyed the barrier between us and God. So what happens is that the veil is human fear that was removed on the cross. But as you turn to face God, your purest likeness turns to face you. Many of us are driven more by fear when it comes to our self-image. So we buy makeup for fear of looking ugly. You know what I mean? We buy clothes for fear of looking whack, you know? We buy big iPads um, or fake iPads that, are, that should be iPads. But we walk around and we use them like, like, like cell phones. Huh? Y'all know that boy Jerry be walking around with that big old uh, sky pad. <laughs> I'm going to be like this, yeah. I'm going to be looking. <laughs> He'd be like this. <laughs> He'd be looking so important with that sky pad. Man, put that sky pad down. You're the pro tip man. You don't need no pad. We buy so many things to promote our self-image that are rooted in fear rather than our faith in God. Yes? No? Right? Why do we do that? It's not rhetorical. Why do we do that? Why do we create an image for ourselves that's rooted more in fear than it is in faith? Because we feel we're unacceptable as we are. Mm -hmm. You said what? You could predict the outcome. That's really good. Anybody else? <laughs> to discern the difference. And I think there's a difference between having something you like and wanting it and needing it and you believing that if you don't have it, you're not wanted. There's a difference. Like, so if you have something that you like and you want it, then like it and want it. But if you believe without it, you won't be wanted, then that's where the fear comes into place. You understand the difference between the two? Okay, so what do I become if I am not God's likeness. When our thoughts are random and restless, which is what happens when we are not rooted in this sense of identity in God, when our thoughts are random and restlessly driven by what we don't like, we become likeness, like less, and a likeness of nothing we love. See, in those moments when we are unwilling to turn and face God, when we fear feel fearful, when we feel inferior. In those moments, instead of focusing on what we like in God, to affirm what God likes in us, to become the likeness of God, like this, this whole experience, this whole movement, when we avoid that, what happens is we focus more on the things and the people that we don't like. You know anybody like that? So rather than um, looking into the mirror to reflect the likeness of God and to do the work to move through the fear and the failure to get 
faithfully to the likeness of God that God has called us to, what we would rather do is turn our backs to the mirror and turn to the world with our fingers pointing at people as to what we don't like about this, as to what we don't like about that, right? When we focus more on what we don't like in life, we become like less. You become liked less by people too, by the way. You become like less and a likeness of nothing you love. You will never become a likeness of what you love if you're always focusing on what you don't like. I'm sorry. It is impossible to do both. The Bible says that a double-minded man, woman, boy, or child is unstable in all of his or her ways. So if you have your feet rooted in focusing on what um, you really love in life and your fingers pointed like in a back bend. Oh, I almost did a back bend just then. In a back bend. Mama, you want me to do a back bend? No. And your fingers pointed back. It is impossible. It is. No, I'm going to do it. Can I live like this? Can I work like this? Can I play with my baby like this? Come here, baby. (laughs) We bend over backwards trying to point fingers negatively at people in the past who are the reason why we can't be the likeness of God in the present rather than putting our fingers putting our toes, putting our chest and our chins forward into the future, meaningfully seeking out where God is calling us to go. If you spend more hours in the day focused on what you don't like, you will never become the likeness of a God who is the creator because you are focused on what you want to destroy before you can be happy rather than what you want to create to be joyful. When we don't focus on what we like most with our minds and with our hearts, we become like less and a likeness of nothing we love. And then it gets worse. Soon, so you gave me the driver. Oh, thank you. So, sorry. Soon, soon we become a Loch Ness monster that is only the likeness of everything we hate. What is a Loch Ness monster? Y'all remember the Loch Ness monster? Huh? Y'all remember I was in middle school, they'd be like, we found the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> and here's a picture of it. A fisherman in, in Scotland found this picture, and the Loch Ness Monster is coming to a library near you. Be, be, beware. This monster submerged itself, so the, the, the mythology tells us, submerged itself in times when things are calm, but it arises in the moment of fear and doubt. So the more fearful you are on the Loch Ness, which is a body of water in Scotland, the more it is likely to rise its head. Because if you are afraid, then it is drawn, it smells your fear, is what the myth, myth teaches us. It smells your fear, right? We become Loch Ness monsters. The thing that's nasty and ill-fated and twisted about us most, that we submerge most of the time, that thing rises like a nasty, ugly monster when we focus on what we don't like. What I'd like to institute going forward in the Awakenings Movement is a time of Q&A midway through the experience before we get into the turn. So right now, in the arc of the narrative that I'm trying to create, we're like at the, at the top of the arc, right? And I'm about to move to the, to the other part of the arc, like the arc goes like this. So at the top of the arc, I want to stop and open up the floor for any questions or challenges that people may have. Marlon, you're lying. Focusing on what I don't like makes me a happier person. That's just me. I like disliking people, places or things. Of course, that's a gross exaggeration, but if if it's a challenge, if it's a question, if it's a statement, anybody have a statement? Yes. Yes, Andrea. Um, If 
tool. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I want you to ask that question after two questions, and then I'm going to say, that's a great segue. Um, I work in the academy, by the way, God has just blessed me, and I have been offered a contract to be a lecturing fellow at Princeton University. <laughs> like this ain't gonna keep me from God's love. No, it ain't, right? And I'm really excited about it. And uh, I'm very excited about the opportunity to tell people I am a fellow at Princeton University, but I'm not excited about working with academics. No offense, Josie. Um, I love academics, right? And they invite me into the academy because uh, I'm a disruptive innovator. A guy named Christian Christensen says that without disruption, there is no true innovation. So we have to embrace disruptive innovators. And so I'm a disruptive innovator to the, to the institution of the academy. But a lot of times in the academy, to answer your question, Danielle, Oftentimes, people are rewarded for being critical thinkers, and that's great. But there's a difference between a critical thinker who likes to break things and people down, rather than a critical thinker who likes to put their finger on the pulse of what's critical to life, to build things up, to continue the future, right? So sometimes, people create problems in the academy to solve so that they can be known as problem solvers. You know people like that who do that? Ah, I disagree. Mm-mm. Bluebell is not the best ice cream in the country. There's a little uh, creamery on the east side of New Jersey uh, owned by a Loch Ness monster. You know, all kinds of stuff. You're like, man, please, it's the best ice cream in the country, right? So the difference is focusing on what's critical to bring life or focusing on what's critical to break down. You know what I'm saying? So that we can be known, the, we have to focus on what we ultimately like. If we're in the academy, like we like to teach. We like to see people grow through learning, right? So the ultimate goal of what we like, the likeness of God as an academician, is to grow people, right? But the opposite of that likeness is to tear people down. Okay, so here we go. What does a Loch Ness, oh, can you, I'm sorry, can you ask your question again? So what processes do we use to know the difference? What a great segue. <laughs> what does a Loch Ness look like in human beings? There are three, two, right, main Loch Ness monsters. And all of us fall in one of these two areas in between. The first one is the quiet riots of self-hate. We have these quiet riots within us that perpetuate self-hate, which is the opposite of self-critical, beautiful self-evaluation, where we negatively speak to ourselves and tear ourselves down, right? I want you to do an example for me right quick, just, and you don't have to be very bold, right? Oh, beautiful rain. Okay? Now there's me, there's the me, that's the Marlin, right? But then there are things that I always say about myself, I'm so stupid. I always mess up. 
ah, ah, ah. So name one positive thing about generally about human beings, one positive thing. What's the opposite of caring when you make a mistake? I always what? Hate? Oh, wow. Judge. Give me another characteristic of a true me. Friendly. Oh, man. God, I got to go. How do you spell friendly? I mean, I don't have to spell friend. Friendly, judge. So these things, like what happens is when we make the mistake of hating where we should care or judging where we should feel, uh, where we should be friendly, we create these quiet riots in our heads. We riot. And one thing I, I think is so beautiful and interesting about a riot is that a riot is anticlimactic but deeply um, um, self-aware. Because a riot, when some, someone starts a riot in their own neighborhood, they break down their very own neighborhood, their own place of residence on a surface level. But on a deep level, they say that where I am is not where it should be and I want to make a change, right? And so the true nature of what you want to do is to make a change where you are. But you should not tear away at your own psyche, tear away at your own spirit. And then there are people who articulate the Loch Ness Monsters to become noisy cowards with social fears. You ever seen a noisy coward? You ever seen somebody about to fight, right? I guarantee you the loudest person is the wackest fighter. If you see two people about to fight and you see one dude, I don't care how, what size that dude is, and he's like, what? You want to, what? Man, y'all, man, y'all hold me. Hold me, get, hold my watch. Hold my this. Hold my that. Oh, girl, tell my, uh-uh, get my earring. Get my earring. Where's my Vaseline? You know, all this stuff. And what we know that? The loudest person is the person who has the least, least, the least capacity to change somebody's life if you know what I'm talking about. And that person has to scream loud. You see, that's because the nature of a human being that is not in the likeness of God, who is more like the Loch Ness Monster, we whisper when we should yell, and we yell when we should whisper. Then there's the whispering, willing to be a likeness of the Creator. And that's where we want to get. That's where we want to get. What does a Loch Ness Monster really long to do? The scripture tells us, let's say it together. Ready? Say it. Soar, run, walk. How does a Loch Ness monster become the likeness of God? Thank you so much for asking. Socrates was asked, what is a thought? And he answered, the talk which the soul has with itself. Your thoughts are conversations that you have with yourself. And whether you have quiet riots or whether you scream loudly, right, to reject the social fear, or whether you whisper a willingness to be the likeness of God will de be determined by one thing, and that is name-given self-talk. There's a new psychological phenomenon that I want to introduce to our community that I've been experimenting with over the past seven days. I've been experimenting with Phoenix with it over the past seven days. Regina hasn't caught on to it yet, but in the name of Jesus, we're going to move into that direction. I'm just playing. I haven't started with Regina. But uh, it's, been, it's been really working. It's been really working. And self-talk... Uh, was introduced by the Soviet psychologist, and he called it name-given self-talk. And it's putting our thoughts, his name is Lev Vygotsky. Lev Vygotsky, no problem. Well, you're, you're hating when you should care, and that's no problem. 
You look, you Loch Nessing. You Loch Nessing. Don't Loch Ness. Like Ness. I'm just playing, dude. It's okay. Um, putting our thoughts into words makes them a more tangible form, which makes them easier to use, right? When we put our name-given talk, what does that look like? Well, I'm going to give you the practical, the prophetic, and the practice of this experience. And this moves into an answer to your question, Andrea, of how to, what tools can we use, what practice? For quiet riots of self-hate, the practical experience is name-given self-talk. The first thing you have to understand about it is that it, ready, read, distances you from the stress of the moment to widen your I want to talk about suspending burdening suspicions, right? You know, the Bible says that God will give those who hope in him the strength to extend their wings and soar. One of the ways that you can soar in life is to suspend your negative suspicions of everybody. One of the ways in which we can truly bring scripture to life when Jesus when, when Isaiah, the prophet, tells us that we can soar like eagles, eagles, don't you know that you can rise above the criticism that you think people around you have for you that they may not have for you? But we are suspicious of people thinking negatively of us. We can soar and rise above that by simply suspending that thought. Now, here's the prophetic voice to that. Those who hope in the Lord will expand their wings. They will widen their perspective and soar like eagles. They will suspend burdening suspicions. The best way to expand your wings is to engage in self-talk. The best way to soar in life, to rise above the suspicion of people thinking negatively of you, is to suspend those suspicions just for a little bit to do what? I'm glad you asked. Between Chicago and San Francisco. So B.B. King in um, 1966 made his way to Chicago and this was at a time when blues music was losing its popularity. You got to recognize that soul music was heavily influenced by a movement of progression for black people. And so the blues music seemed to be a passive antagonist to the progressive movement of soul music. And so a lot of people really went into the blues, certainly not a lot of African-American youth. They were into music that had a, a, a tempo and also a, a lyrical content that communicated more progression, more movement. You guys with me? B.B. King decided that he was going to explore a new market, which was away from the Chitlin circuit where he had found success and into other communities, like upscale communities. And so he made his way to Chicago. And when he got to Chicago in 66, he went to this upscale performance space, and they introduced him as such. Okay, folks, time to pull out your chitterlings and your collard greens, your pig's feet, and your watermelons because... Here's B.B. King, he said before he took the stage, he cried. Close friends said that that hurt him deeply, but he said to himself, B.B. King, you've done this before, you could do it again. He said to what? Himself. B.B. King, you've done this before. Two years later, no, let me do this. Two years later, he's in San Francisco at the Fillmore West, and he's driving up to the event. So he kept soaring above the criticism that he was getting because of his skin color and because of the skin color of the people who played the music from 66 to 68. He just kept saying to himself, B.B. King, you've done it before, you could do it again. B.B. King, you've done it before, you could do it again. B.B. King, you've done it before, you could do it again. Until 1968 came, and he was playing at the Fillmore West. And as he was driving up to the venue, he saw a whole bunch of long-haired, 
Caucasian-American people, and he said to the driver, he said, sir, I think you got the wrong spot. And I was like, no, this is the Fillmore West. This is where you're playing tonight. And immediately he went back to 1966 in Chicago and thought to himself, I'm going to be embarrassed again. And he said to himself again, B.B. King, you've done it before. You can do it again. He spoke to himself in a third person. B.B. King, you've done it before. You could do it again. And when he got onto the stage, he said this was the seminal moment of when his career significantly changed. He said he got onto the stage and he saw a crowd full of long-haired hippies. And the gentleman got up and introduced him as such. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you the chairman of the board, B.B. King. He said his life changed from that moment on. And he knew that he was not just a fad to be made fun of but that he was going to make a significant contribution to music. Don't you know that boy B.B. King performed for over 40 years? In 2006, he performed 172 days in his 70s. This dude was hot. He was significant. Why? Because he was able to mount up his wings and to soar above the criticism that was right in his face. He suspended people's criticism long enough for him to do what he liked to do, to become the likeness of his creator. Okay, let's talk about this practically. What does this look like for you, Marlon? Okay, thank you. Uh, Marlon Fitzgerald Hall, why are you so scared? It's not your first sermon, is it? No one was forced to come unwillingly to learn, were they? Every time I preach, every time I get up in front of people, what's up, man, welcome, how are you? Good, 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 we're gonna get you a seat, man. Every time, oh, you got one. Every time I come up, oh, thank you. Every time I get ready to do a sermon, I'm like, man, you suck. You know what I'm saying? You're horrible. You're going to ramble. Your cousin's going to go to sleep. It's going to be horrible. <laughs> it's going to be terrible, dog. But all week I've been, like, talking to myself outside of myself, right, the way that Liv says that I should. And I've said, Marlon, equip yourself, prepare yourself, and do what you like to do. I've said to myself, Marlon, look into the faces of the people you love and tell them about the God that loves them. I was able to remove myself all week in preparation for this sermon from myself long enough to suspend my suspicion that I am not effective in what I'm doing. I'm giving you a practice for how you can become your best, your brightest likeness. The first thing you need to do is speak your whole name. Let me, say you, let me hear you say your whole name. Ready? Say it. Y'all got some long names. <laughs> and your name, your Kenyan name, right? Speak your name. Uh, psychologists say when you do that, the first thing you do is you remove yourself from the stress of the situation. You take yourself outside of the moment and you look at yourself from a different vantage point. In fact, the Bible says that you spread your wings. Noisy cowards of social fears. The practical example of this is name-given self-talk, the second phase of name-given self-talk. Name-given self-talk enhances your capacity to move beyond paralysis and powerfully plan. The first thing name-given self-talk does is it removes you from the stress. The second thing you do when you name self-talk, the second sentence that you have, should be one where you give yourself a plan. I said, Marlon, people did not come not to listen, they came to listen, so plan your work and work your plan. You can remove yourself by giving yourself that plan. And what does that do prophetically? They shall run, move beyond paralysis, and not get tired, powerfully plan. The scripture lines directly up with this psychological phenomenon. 
And if you can remove yourself long enough to suspend yourself from the suspicion that you are not liked, then you can remove yourself long enough to give yourself a plan and speak to yourself as if you are outside of yourself. Some psychologists, modern psychologists say that you need to invoke the voice of a person that you respect in your life, right? So that may be James Earl Jones. Y'all need to develop that James Earl Jones. <laughs> give yourself that James Earl Jones. For me, it's my daddy. I hear my daddy say, son, work your plan, plan your, plan your plan and work it, and it will work. Plan your plan and work it, and it will work, okay? That allows you to move beyond paralysis and to powerfully plan. Here's the thing that we do. We scream on others in those moments when we personally feel paralyzed. How do you know when a person is socially and emotionally paralyzed? The louder they get with the people they love. The softer and the more even-toned people are with the people that they love, you can tell that that person is more the likeness of themselves and more the likeness of their creator. But the moment that people start getting loud with each other is the moment you know that people are not listening to the voice of God reminding them of their own likeness. So what's the practice? My cousin, my cousin calls me Fitz. And so in the last phase of it, I call myself Fitz. Fitz, if you get stuck, look into the eyes of the people you love and tell them about the ick who loves them. And when I say the ick, I mean, no, I, I, that's a mistake. I was about to say, that means the icky. No, it's not. That's just a mistake. <laughs> do not take a picture of that. Do not put that in Instagram. Do not send that to Martin Lawrence. No, it's not. Um, noisy cowards, noisy cowards. It's time for us to make room for affirmation. Make room for a way to alleviate defensiveness and prevent the poison of negative rumination. So then what does that look like? Technically, it looks like this. Marlon, no past failure leaves you without what you need to do what you like. You are a good man with a great purpose to walk out, seeking Lucille in the fire as we close. I've always wondered, why does B.B. King always call every guitar he plays Lucille? Anybody know this story? Oh, I knew that boy Chris was going to be like, oh, yes, actually, in 18. <laughs> so in the 50s, before that boy was even born, he knew what happened. In the 50s, B.B. Uh, King was beginning his career, and he owned a $30 Gibson guitar, full body. He said it was small in the waist, big in the hips, right? <laughs> he called it his woman, right? But he, he had no name for this guitar. So one day he was performing, and the music was getting so good that one dude started looking at this other dude's gal, and the other dude got suspicious. These dudes started fighting. They were in a, a juke joint, and the kerosene heater spilled over. The whole club caught a blaze, and everybody ran out. And then B.B. King recognized he didn't have his woman with him. B.B. King risked his life to run into the juke joint, grabbed his $30 Gibson. As things settled, he walked around looking for the two dudes he saw fighting. He asked the one dude who had the woman, he said, man, what's your woman's name? He said, man, Lucille. He said, you know what? That's going to be the name of every guitar I have ever since. <laughs> So no matter what guitar he was playing with, and they said he had hundreds, the name of that Gibson guitar that he loved to play was called a full-body 
Lucille. You see, he was able to turn what could have been a moment that disseminated, that destroyed him into a moment that gave him a new name, a new identity, that gave what he liked a new name and a new identity. I want to close by saying this about B.B. King. Would y'all please look at this picture? The most famous quote that B.B. King ever said is that he wanted people to feel the emotion in the song that he sang. And so people would always ask him, B.B. King, why you look so ugly when you sing? He said, because sometimes life is what? But music is good. B.B. King used to play on, this, on the corners of Memphis on Beale Street, and he was planning to become a gospel guitarist. But early in his career, he said that as he was playing, he said people who were not Christians would stop by and give him major tips for his plan and say, keep going. He said the good Christian people would stop by and give him really good advice, but no tips. He said, I can't make no money being Christian. I can't live being Christian. I want to invite you to rethink what it means to become the image of Christ, to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe being a follower of Jesus is not becoming like something that's outside of you. Maybe becoming the likeness of Jesus is becoming something that is deeply embedded in you. Maybe becoming a follower of Jesus is becoming the purest nature of who you are at your core. And maybe it's not a matter of finding something outside of you in a journey or in a search for God, but finding the richest, most meaningful part of God inside of you. But Marlon, how do I do that? It's time for us to start talking to ourselves, y'all. If B.B. King can talk to a guitar, you can talk to yourself. You talk to yourself in three phases. The first phase of your talk allows you to soar, mount up your wings and to soar to rise above the suspicion, suspicion, to suspend suspicion. And the first thing you do is you call your whole name and you tell your whole name that everything is gonna be okay. You remove yourself from the stress, number one. The second thing you do is you give yourself by your whole name a plan. You give yourself a plan. And then the last thing that you do is you encourage yourself. You say, self, you're good, you're important, you're valuable. And if you do those things, three things, you will mount up like wings of an eagle, you will run and not faint, and not just that, but you will walk and never give up. And in this journey inward, you will discover the most pure version of who God is in the world, deeply embedded in you. And you just may become such the likeness of God that you create artwork that makes people look more like themselves than they do sometimes even in person. You may just create music that makes people feel what they feel in a way that they would not without the music. You may just write prescriptions in such a way that it just changes people's lives. Look at us, just writing prescriptions. <laughs> God is waiting for you, not outside of you, but in you. He's beckoning you into the deepest corner and recess of your soul to become the likeness of him by becoming the person you like the most, your purest likeness.